Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Again, it's a security show. <laughs> yeah, we we'll have, we'll have to maybe we'll play the safety dancer as our opening, opening music or something. Or do you not remember that reference? <laughs> you can dance if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> safety dance. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 156 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitchell and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? All right, and uh, the rest of the gang can't be here. Mark's indisposed, and Tammy's indisposed, and Greg's at a meetup being social, so it's just the two of us, just us chickens. I think I told Greg, like, there's there's no shame in being in some back room somewhere, or in an alley, or even in your car. We have done a show where you and Mark were traveling. You were the right. ones yep. driving at yep. home. So did you just say that to him on Slack or did you shame him on Slack? I, I, I probably should shame him on Slack. Yeah, I shame him on Slack. Yeah. Tell him, hey man, like you can record it from the Caltrain. Like, you'll yeah, you'll yeah. fit right in. Nobody will think you're crazy. Yeah, just jump on the Chrome Chrome browser and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, find a fan and say, hey, I got a fan here or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So what do we got posted here today? We have... Go back to the notes, switching browsers, because that's the way technology works today. Yeah. Okay. So I put up a post here about Apple. It says Apple pulls massive home home kit chip U-turn to keep up with Amazon Echo and Google Home. And the reason I posted this is because our friend Jaime has been doing lots of uh, talking about, um, you know, his love for Amazon. And he has a good, I think you have a Google Home device too, right? Um, and I've been using home kit myself at, at, at my homestead and, uh, you know, running HomeBridge so that I can link in my non-home kit devices uh into uh into this i gotta turn my notifications off all right one second okay um yeah so anyway so apple apparently well this is this was announced at wwdc i think that uh apple no longer requires people to enroll or companies to enroll in the made for mac program uh which you know costs them extra money to to enroll and they have sort of some guidelines to meet i think a lot of uh um home kit or or home automation is the proper term i guess uh appliances 
devices, you know, weren't too thrilled about having to jump through that extra hoop. So Apple sort of removed that restriction, right? I mean, yeah, it was a little unclear in the article even states here how it was sort of like details will be coming soon. And I think what people initially took from this was, oh, well, you know, if you're going to be a developer and you're going to test these things out, okay, well, you won't have to go through this rigorous process. But the presumption was going to be, oh, well, it's still going to work the same way it normally does when you try to ship these out to actual real customers. And it seems like less so. They, they're opening it up a whole lot more by changing that, you know, oh, it's a, you must have the verily this specific chipset to handle the um, you know, the security side of this. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they have some sort of software-based solution to do the same thing and presumably do it securely as well. Right. So, right. I mean, that's great because it like there are advantages to having hardware. Don't get me wrong. There's a huge reason why there's that, uh, you know, that secure enclave on the phone itself to do, handle Touch ID, for example, but it's pricey to do so. And I think in this case, Apple sort of saw it was like, all right, you know, right now is early days where there are HomeKit enabled solutions and there's a ton of other different kind of solutions. And right now, everybody has no choice but to integrate with everybody else, with the exception of the fact that HomeKit is the one, if anything, you might have previously left out of your specific choices if you were a company because you might have said, you know what, it's going to be too expensive. Let's go with the Google or Amazon solutions and add those both because they're both cheap to integrate. I'm guessing Apple kind of saw the writing on the wall as like, it's a little too soon to try to crack down on this sort of thing because you end up potentially being the Betamax, uh, you know, in the VHS Betamax sort of standard wars sort of thing where you don't want to be in the outside looking in, um, right, especially right, when yeah. you have two, two like very successful competitors who have you know a hardware product that does integrate, you know, the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. And you've got one of your own coming out really soon in December for the Apple HomePod. So I think this is a smart move by them. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, my, I have a next thermostat and I have the next um, protect uh, smoke detector, carbon monoxide detectors uh, in the house and, and they they can be tied into the system and, and I have to run, you know, because I have a server here, I can run the HomeBridge software, but I have to reboot it every couple of days. It's a real pain in the ass, but um, um, it'd be nice if, if Apple kind of lowered the bar. And so what they're doing here is they're, they're having a software version of uh, their solution, which, uh, you know, and not requiring people to sign up for this MFI uh, product. Too bad we didn't know anybody who was once enrolled in MFI who's not on the show tonight. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he could say something about that. But anyway, because um, we know nothing about it because we are not, weren't, weren't enrolled. But um, yeah, so that's that's a good thing, right? So hopefully we'll get more home automation, you know, uh, out, of, uh, out of the Apple product. I mean, like, like for instance, I have the the um, August uh, door opener. Uh, and I, I, I think I when, I when I got it, I was rather pleased with the idea that I could use it. But like after, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but after like one or two updates, it stopped. It stopped um, um, rendering properly on my iPhone 6 Plus. I can't see hmm. the button that, that enables you to open and close the door. However, it does have HomeKit integration, so I can actually unlock the door using HomeKit. So, and I can unlock, unlock it from anywhere in the world as long as I, you know, have an internet connection, which is kind of cool, right? So, mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. get notifications that you know someone. So when when the door is unlocked and locked and whatever, I get notifications. Like Carol also gets notifications. So she, she's upstairs, and I'm coming home late from a concert or something like that you know, when she's notified when the door opens kind of thing, which is really nice. You know, it's, that's again, something you get with home kit if you want. Right. And I have a lot of our house, our lights here in the house automated so that, you know, at certain times, like I, one cool one is I've got the lights that come, they come on at sunset. Right. And then they go off at like midnight, for instance, you know, so mm-hmm. I have a group of lights in the house that, you know, uh, it's nice to not have to worry about, you know, going over and flicking on a light. I know it's not very much a first world problem, but, um, it's still nice to have that kind of, automation you know or like if if you know a friend wants to come to the house and they, they can 
ping me on my text phone on my on my cell phone i can unlock the door for them right so other than the fact that the august but but coming where i was going with this and uh, which i just remembered was that the august lock was like three hundred dollars and i think it was i mean must have been three hundred dollars because of the part of that must have been the licensing or whatever program that they have to be involved with apple right so that is one of the mfi Mm -hmm. products right so yeah there there was a cost there and i think that's worth pointing out that you know a lot of folks be like oh man like this home kit enabled thing it's so much more expensive right Uh, right like okay well remember when we had that huge botnet the mirai botnet that was being driven by iot internet of things devices right and guess what it wasn't home kit devices it was all these other cheaper devices that people just didn't you know the implementers just didn't really care at all about security right it was insane like how i mean i hesitate to call it negligence there because it's you know that has a criminal aspect but it definitely wasn't very mindful and thoughtful and i think uh apple clearly thought about this very long and hard and and they took their own sort of twist on it but you know it's it's good to see that they are still pushing for the security side but they've found a way to reduce the you know the cost side right let's pretend that chip i don't know how much it costs let's assume in bulk it costs like five dollars all right that doesn't seem like much but if you're there at home depot and you're like all right well we want to buy these you know these switches we hook them up to our you know our smart homes like oh this switch is 25 dollars. this one's 30 hmm guess which one you're gonna buy right (laughs) right especially if you buy more of them that that five dollars makes a bigger difference so Uh, and that's like i said said, i've had to say to carol like when we're when we're picking out these light bulbs or whatever we're buying make sure it has the home kit uh icon on it because you know otherwise we can't really use it with our with our house right so i'm glad that this this bar is being lowered but uh, you raise another interesting point and and uh, if if people are following the show kind of know that security is one of my pet peeves and um i mean i work in banking and you work in banking and and we both know from that from that point of view that um the the extra effort that goes into security depending on on you know the the seriousness of your, your involvement is quite uh cumbersome to development sometimes you know like sometimes we have to do extra things you know extra encryption and extra you know token passing or you know especially in banking to make sure that that's all secure and you know not not hack, hackable in any way right um, and then, mm-hmm. and then that's part of what Apple is doing too. They like, you know, there are companies that, I don't know if developers know this or not, but there are companies that you can, you can hire and you, you know, pay like a monthly fee or a membership fee or whatever, or thousands of dollars of you know, tens of thousand dollars in some cases that scan your, your software before you submit it to the app store, right? To look for, um, you know, things that you may have forgotten and maybe you have some, some, uh, like a hybrid uh, piece that has some JavaScript in it or something and it may not be super secure or, Maybe you're, there's some basic iOS practices that people do that don't think about it. That you know, if you're if you have a serious app that can be exploited, you want to basically make sure that you haven't left any of these sort of little backdoors unattended or you know blindly blindly unaware that they're open, right? Sort of thing. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And it's not just like oh, okay, well you know, indie developers versus like bigger shop sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that can easily happen even when you have what would be a fair amount of money to do. Remember when the star Starbucks iOS app ran into that, uh, right. you know, unfortunate circumstance where yeah, what was that? I don't remember. That one was somehow related to like analytics logging or something where they, you know, in some sort of error scenario, they would accidentally spit out like your user ID or oh, something right. to yeah. the analytics yeah. log, like yeah. I don't know, uh, Crashlytics or Hockey App or whatever it was they were using. You know, that's the sort of thing you can just unintentionally do because you were probably trying to debug something, right? And if, whoopsie, right. you forgot to do something, and presumably they have peer review processes of some sort that missed it too right yeah, QA yeah. missed it it's like it took a village to have this problem so it's like the sort of thing that you know it takes an entire village to to have something 
be secure, right? It, it, your weakest link in the chain is where the breakage is going to happen. Right. And, and like you said, like this whole, I mean, the Internet of Things, I mean, like how many people are putting dashboard cameras in their cars or, or even pet cams and nanny cams and stuff at home or security cams like the, like the Nest product line has a security camera now, right? That ties in through, mm-hmm. uh, through their ser- service. I mean, if Google dropped the ball and, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, all these Russian people were able to like look in your house and figure out, you know, which houses were the ones worthwhile breaking into as an example, you know, um, that could be, that could be a bad thing for people. Right. So, yeah. And it's a, a huge reason why you'll see folks talking about the security aspects for the Google home and the Amazon echo, because people are worried about that very sort of thing happening, right? right it it right. would be a huge deal and a huge breach of trust that might be irreparable for one of those manufacturers. And I'm going to guess that Apple is going to be the same way too, right? Where these things are going to have to be hardened where they cannot be hacked from the outside. Um, you know, if an intruder has physical access to your device, that like all bets are off, right? Like um, rogue government agents break into your house and modify your device. Like there's only so much <laughs> that can be done to protect against that. But it would be incredibly huge news if it had like, hey, guess what? The Amazon Echo, you know, Alexa service itself was compromised in any way, right? I guarantee you Amazon security engineers are doing everything they can to prevent that nightmare scenario from happening. So. Right, right. But the thing about it is like a company like Amazon or Google or Apple, they can survive, uh, uh, you know, a, a loss like that. Like they can, they've got the insurance and they got the, the money for it, right? But it's like the small mm-hmm. guy who's making the small little indie developer who's making the little light bulb that turns purple, at, you know, at your whim, uh, who, you know, may be involved in this kind of thing. And, you know, that's the kind of, you know, it's MFI is for big boys, right? Like the, you know, you're, you're not your average developer really can't afford to, to sign up to that thing, right? Um, you know, and mm-hmm. as I said before, if you're serious about security, you really have to take the time to sort of make sure you have all the checks and balances in place and you have all the, you know, not just peer review. Because I, I can tell you, I work on bugs all the time where, you know, that have gone through peer review and they've gone through this and, and it's just QA does these really crazy things that you would never think that a, a user would do, but people do it. And QA tests these kind of things and they come back to us as defects and we have to fix them. We're like, well, like, why would you possibly do that? You know, to, to why would you entertain that someone would do that scenario and then, you know, cause the app to fail or whatever, right? <laughs> but, you, you know, yeah. I'm sure that happens for you, right? But, uh yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's totally what people do with their phones, right? It's the sort of thing where you know, it's like the best practice, you know, for people who are trying to think, you know, how can I make this more concrete? You know, I, I'm an indie developer. I don't necessarily have access to um, a penetration team, right. know, red yeah. team that can go in and try to like break into this sort of stuff. Okay, that that's true. You know, it's for, for people who have the, the money um, and the requirements to do that. But I think what we can do every day as developers is one, think about, do I even need to have this data at all? Right. right Whatever right. it is you're trying to do, yep. right? Thank you. You might think, oh, I need this particular analytics data. Okay, great. But do you really need it? Like, is it worth the trade-off that you're making there in the risk? And I think the other thing you can do is try to use what the platform provides for you because there are people whose jobs it is to make sure that stuff like the keychain on iOS is, you know, very secure. So rather than trying to home roll your own, you know, nifty cool thing, I think checking to see what's out there. Um, like Touch ID is a perfect example, right? Hooking into that is great because all of that security aspect is handled by Apple itself, right? right? Yep. You, you don't try to go, you know, be cute and try to make your own crazy authentication systems. Like just let the company that has the time, money, and expertise 
deal with that. And not only will you save your own time and money, but I think you'll also by default be much more secure because you're like standing on the shoulders of giants in that case, instead of just trying to roll it all on your own and taking all of that on your own yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. I think Yagni, I was thinking about that. You, you aren't going to need it. You know, that Yagni principle mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where, you know, you sort of have to evaluate whether you, do you really need this or not? Like you, like you said, if you have five people downloading your app, do you really need to have crash analytics analytics in there? You know, but if you have a million mm-hmm. people downloading your app, I think it's a different story. Right. So, yeah. 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 Having those sorts of things at all is something you definitely need to think about. You know, do I really need this? And then of course, every bit of data that you pull from there, you should think really long and hard about, is this something that I really need? Um, getting back to that sort of example, like even Starbucks ran into this issue and it's rather unfortunate, but it's pretty easy to do, right? The code doesn't know that this is like a PII, personally identifiable information that shouldn't get out. It'd be great if there's like open source tools out there. If, if people know about that sort of stuff, reply to us on Twitter, you know, reply to us on the website, use the, um, you know, hashtag ask MTJC to tell us, you know, about some of the solutions you're using. Cause I think that'd be great to know. Every little bit helps. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's our uh, HomeKit follow-up, or I guess it's is it follow-up. I guess it's follow-up. I don't know. In the long run, everything is follow-up. That's what, Greg is what says, I like yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> MTG. Yeah, yeah. So, um, why don't you tell us about the uh, next post there, or how many about the eleven SDK features in iOS? Yeah, uh, this is a blog post by Jordan Smith talking about the iOS eleven SDK features that didn't make the headlines. So it's you know it's kind of difficult to really cover everything in the WWDC you know keynote or even the platform state the union that tends to be you know, much more in-depth for developers. Um, this is a, a collection of things that were not machine learning related or augmented reality what? related. There was like, stuff these are that wasn't the, that? Oh. Things that are a little, you know, a little bit less sexy than those, but uh, still nice nevertheless. Uh, some of these I, I had no idea existed. Um, but let's roll through these. So there's um, a new annotation view type, MK marker annotation view, that's apparently super configurable and that mm-hmm. would have been so great in the previous life where I was working on at an indoor location services company and having that mapping ability and what you could or couldn't do with annotation views was sort of like a hassle and we ended up having to roll our own for some of that stuff. Um, So it's good to see that this looks like it's pretty nice. And there's a link here in the article as well to what can you change? It's fantastic. There's, uh, I think I saw a blog, a separate blog post altogether. Oh, that's actually a link here on the configurable file headers for Xcode 9. So, you know, those macros and you do, you know, create me a new Swift file and says, you know, copyright, whatever your team name is, you know, it probably says Jaime for mine and 2017, that sort of thing. You can, you can change those. And um, I think for me, for my personal project, I'd probably have them do nothing at all. And having a a template for like your company, you know, your employer would probably be great. So it doesn't say copyright so-and-so, it should probably say copyright, you know, company name. Right, right. Yeah. This is, uh, this is by Ole, Ole uh, Begaman again, the guy who wrote the uh, Swift for Playground. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also the block-based UI table view updates. So as you mentioned here, just like UI collection view has the perform batch updates, you can now update table views with the block and completion handler, which is really, really nice instead of trying to do sort of the, the older fashioned way of doing that. I always did kind of prefer the way the collection view has perform batch updates. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this other one would have been really nice too. So map kit clustering of pins rather than having, you know, some random CocoaPod to do this sort of thing. So if you're imagining, you know, think about where you might have a mapping location you're going to show pins on there. Let's say it's like apartments or something, right? You're like Zillow or Redfin, Trulia.com, that sort of thing. One real common metaphor you might have noticed is that, you know, there might be many, many, you know, pins hypothetically at the same location where you have like a 
huge condo with a lot of stuff that's available for, for rent or for sale, uh, apartments, that sort of thing, where rather than having this crazy cluster of pins, you know, a hundred pins for this new condo complex that's available, it probably has a singular pin that has a number on it that says the number 100 or 99 plus or something. And only when you zoom in to a, you know, a much more fine grained level, will it show you where those individual pins are. Oh, this is one on the Northwest corner or this one's on the Southwest corner. But if you zoom out of the map, it'll say, all right, well, here at this condo complex, there's a hundred and over here across the water, there's like 10 and that sort of thing. So it's really hard to get that sort of thing to be great in performance to do sort of the coalescing of how big geometry wise, um, would you want to use to have a collapsing of pins to make it feel kind of logical for users. So seeing that Apple has done this sort of thing is again, it's another one of those things like use what the platform gives you. Uh, let's see here. Closure based KVO. Oh, okay. So it looks like you can do KVO observations using a uh, closure instead of having to do sort of the less nice way. Uh, kind of like they show the example here in Swift where you can kind of use just like the trailing closure sort of style of doing it instead of having to write it out a little bit more awkwardly, you know, observe, you know, some description or some key path and, you know, with completion handler or whatever you can just do observe, use your, your, your nifty Swift for notation for the key path and then have your object in change in whatever your closure happens to be. Another one here that I see is URL session scheduling. I haven't seen that particular session for WWDC, but I do remember them mentioning this one briefly somewhere that you can um, you can do things like schedule URS, uh, NS URL session stuff to wait for connectivity or to schedule data tasks for a later time, like, you know, wait X amount of uh, seconds, for example, to go do stuff. That's really nice because there's definitely a lot of third-party stuff out there that does that sort of thing, but it's really nice to not have to worry about pulling in yet another CocoaPod. Vector UI image, we actually talked about that one on the show before and the the last, but maybe not least one, is the new MapKit display type where you can have a muted display type instead of having, you know, every little oh, thing annotated on, oh, on yeah. there. It shows you kind of like, all right, you get the idea. You're in the northeast part of San Francisco, right? Yes, there are certain map types where you might want to show points of interest and not necessarily the roads that get you there. Right, yeah. Cool. Yeah, or like where your store is located on, on the map but not draw attention to other things that would distract people, right? Yeah, it's kind yeah. of cool. Neat. Alrighty. So what's this po- post you put here about the watch OS four? Yeah, this is a blog post by um, Christina Tai, and it's talking about the frontmost app state that's available in watch OS four. There's a little bit of um, API goodness that Apple has given to watch OS apps that one are the frontmost app and two enable this sort of functionality in there. Um, and as noted here in the article, the frontmost app is defined as the app that's on the watch screen when the user drops their wrist hmm. as a, opposed user, to the as opposed, opposed to the like the chronograph look or yeah yeah so in this case it says like if a user raises their wrist within two minutes they'll see this same app again and it'll become the active app okay oh, cool, cool yeah so what do you do that's like well you can extend wrist raise time that's a mouthful um as you know it's here by default there's a two minute timeout for apps to stay um you might have noticed this if you i don't know if you were like an overcast or you were in the timers app or yeah Listening to music or something like that, something. yeah. Yeah, you, you drop your wrist, but it's like, oh man, I forgot to do one of those things. You raise your wrist again, the app is still there. Normally times that after two minutes that you're you're not looking at it, right? You're not you know, actively engaging with it in any way. Um, but let's say your particular app has some very good reason to hang around. Uh, maybe you're like a ride-sharing app, as mentioned here in this example, and you, you really want to not have to make the user navigate back to that location. You can ask for an extension and 
I don't know if it's mentioned here. Oh, yes, it does have a specific time. The operating system will extend that period of time to eight minutes. So it's the kind of thing I think you're going to want to be careful. You know, you don't, don't just go be like, hey, man, like my app is like the coolest app. I'm going to extend it to eight minutes no matter what. I, I really think you should think long and hard about is this the sort of thing, you know, is your app the sort of app that really does need this sort of capability? And two, is the user even in a context where they want this to happen, right? Like just think about it from their perspective, as I think would be my guidance there. And, and of course, you can do some other things here too, like play haptics or um, handling notifications. Like you can say, oh, uh, well, I'm the frontmost app. And rather than displaying this, like the normal push notification thing, um, let's say like a, a notification came in while the user is interacting with your app, you could do something different, like play a haptic and tap the user and draw their attention to the fact that something has happened rather than sort of letting the push notification just like cover the display, which you probably don't want as a user. It's like, well, I don't need to be notified in that sort of way because I'm, I'm already engaging with the app. I don't need to be re-engaged with it. I just need to be alerted to the fact that something has changed. That's cool. Yeah. I don't remember there being a ton in watchOS 4 from what I recall. I think right now it feels like the watch is really getting sort of refined and honed into what appears to be a very, what, successful product? Are, are we okay saying that? I mean, we talked, <laughs> you know, like last episode, like, hey, you know, yeah, surprise the Amazon style like, yeah, number. Yeah. It's, it's up 50%. And I, I'd mentioned anecdotally, I, I see way more of them. Um, I noticed this yesterday. I, you know, we're, we're going to be at 360 iDev. So I was like, oh, let me go stop off at Target and get some, you know, TSA airport friendly sized, yeah. you know, hygienic yeah, products. Yeah. Like, oh, I probably need, you know, brush my teeth and I don't want to stink. So I'm going to need some deodorant and we go get some stuff at Target. And I noticed when I was getting, um, going through the checkout line, it's like, hey, uh, a lot of the check stand people have Apple really? watches. Yeah, yeah. And at first I thought, oh, uh, maybe they have some sort of like company app. And I checked, it's like, no, not every one of them has one and they're not the same style. It doesn't look like they were bought in bulk. I think these are ones they just bought themselves because they like it. Right, right. It's, I guess Seattle must be a hip happening place then, I guess. It, we are a very, you know, fortunate and tech friendly area being on the coast and being right. one of the, you know, the, the tech hubs for the oh, country. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you have that big giant uh, software company nearby. Yeah, I forgot about them. It, I've, I've often said, like, we, we're historically known as Jet City USA because of our aerospace oh, really, history right. with Boeing. But we're really, you know, if you're thinking with your Star Wars hat on, we're Cloud City, right? Like Bespin. <laughs> we, we have the number one provider at Amazon and the number two and three in Microsoft for Azure and Google for the cloud platform. And Starbucks, too. And we'll even take number four for Salesforce, oh, right? Uh, like, yeah. if, if it's a service that you depend on as a company and it's in the cloud, it's almost certainly got an office in Seattle, if not its headquarters. Right, right. Isn't it Latson out there, too, I think, somewhere? I'm sorry, Latsian, what was that? you know, the, the Confluence people, aren't they out there somewhere? Atlassian, they're in the Bay Area? I think, I don't know. They, they have a couple different offices. I think they have one in, well, okay, so I'm getting confused. So I, they did start in Australia. They moved to the Bay Area, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. When they ended up buying, um, not HipChat, um, Trello. When they bought Trello, they acquired a Denver and New York office, right, which right. is what I think Trello had. So such a complex yeah. world. Well, like I said, I think in my, my story, where I talked about my beginnings as an iOS developer, the first conference I went to actually was in Seattle at the um, Edgewater Hotel, right? Or right next to the Edgewater Hotel and mm -hmm. um, met a lot of like early early app uh, people there, um, you know, in terms of like who, who was there at the conference and stuff like that. But yeah, it was uh, uh, interesting times. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, so it's kind of, yeah, I, did, I didn't realize 
realize it was Jet City. I know it was. I know Starbucks headquarters is there, and I guess like you said Amazon's out there, right? So plus mm-hmm. hmm. yeah, the big, the big MS themselves, right? Oh. Redmond's not too far from Seattle, is it? It's not too far. The, the farness, if you're thinking of anything, is really just because traffic is terrible here. It's distance-wise is uh, really easy to drive at like three in the morning. <laughs> Going through rush hour is a different <laughs> different. Story. Yeah, but I mean, if, if people are working in Redmond, they could be living in sitting like like Greg who works in Menlo Park, but you know commutes to to San Francisco. He, he prefers to live in the city, right? Um, wouldn't something similar be where you could live in Seattle or, or the surrounds of Seattle and work in Redmond? Is that possible? Sure, sure, and and plenty of people do that, and that's a definitely big reason why traffic is so bad. Right, of course, yeah, because <laughs> we don't have a we don't have a great transit system, you know, a mass transit system, so people sort of end up single passenger, or yes, single passenger driving in the car. Yeah, I do remember when I was there, we, we decided to skip out of the uh, afternoon session one day and go off to the Apple store and uh, trying to get to the Apple store. I don't know how many Apple stores you have in Seattle now, but at the time there was the one in that big mall. Um, and it was like, it was the first time I'd seen that many cars, you know, anywhere. I mean, like we have cars like that here in Toronto, of course, but, you know, um, it, it, my friend Pat Sallow, who's uh, from Sacramento was saying, yeah, the whole left coast is all people drive. They don't, they don't walk, they don't bus, they drive. Is that the case? Yeah. I think the density is much lower here on the West coast than it is in the East. You'd, you'd have a very different answer if you were talking New York, Boston. Hmm. Anyway, everything mm-hmm. you want to know about Seattle, but we're afraid to ask. Yeah. And of course you got the space <laughs> needle and the science science center, science museum there. And, and that, um, the Jimi Hendrix, uh, exhibition or museum or whatever. Yeah. The, um, Jimi Hendrix well, experience, I guess it used right? to be called the experience music project, which just got renamed to, cause it's with the science fiction museum as well. It's like the museum of like pop art or oh, something. Really? I don't, I don't know. I'll have to look it up for you. It recently rebranded. Hmm. People have forgotten about Jimmy, have they? <laughs> No, in this case, the the whole thing went beyond just music. It was the Experience Music Project, but now they've also had a very sizable and growing science fiction museum. So, you know, we've had the Game of Thrones. Oh, right, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, wardrobes and props and stuff come through and Star yeah, Wars. Well, I saw the Star Wars thing at the Science Center stuff. there. The, the year I was there back in 2012, maybe. They had a, uh, I had, you know, an hour to kill before my flight, and, and there was a Star Wars exhibit I went to before taking off. But um, you were telling me something about uh, some other museum or something. Oh, computer museum. Isn't there a computer museum in Seattle? Something like that? The Living Computer Museum, which is, is actually really nice. It's where you can really easily see how things went from, you know, tape player right, style yeah. the 1960s Star Trek. This is a computer to holy smokes, this is Windows 95 and this is the iPhone sort of level of, a, of curiosity for technology. So it's, I definitely recommend folks come. If they come to Seattle, they go check yeah, it out. Yeah, I went to the Computer History Museum when I went to uh, California in February. I think that was I want to say Palo Alto. No, not Palo Alto. Where's uh, Where's Google? That's uh, Mountain View, right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think the Computer History Museum is Mountain View. And the same sort of thing. It starts off, you know, they have a Babbage difference engine at the beginning and you go all the way through to, you know, uh, they even had a, all, a Xerox Altair computer there and, you know, gaming systems and stuff like that. It's really kind of cool. And, and showing the different styles of media, like right from, like you said, from punch cards to magnetic tape to optical drive to to uh, flash drive, flash storage with SSDs and stuff like that too. Watch finishing stuff. 
Yeah, it really gives you some perspective because I think the last thing I'll say about the Living Computer Museum is, you know, there are many people discussing, like, hmm, I wonder if they can shave some pounds off of this MacBook Pro and will the MacBook Air survive? I really like it. It's really easy and portable. Um, these things weigh about, you know, two-ish pounds uh-huh. to begin with. And you can see these fantastic people, business people who were ecstatic that they're 40-pound luggable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it looks like you're carrying a vault uh, with something that they could use to take their computer from the office and have the flexibility to work from home too. And they loved it. And people like, uh, or companies like Compaq were very successful right, making yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. So it, it gives you a different perspective as the, what does portability really mean? And it, it's always better to be in, in the present for technology, I think, and the future even more so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first Mac portable was uh, 16 pounds. It wasn't exactly a laptop, <laughs> but, uh, and I think um, it was the equivalent of a Mac classic, you know, like it was, wasn't quite a like a Mac Plus, but it was a Mac Classic kind of equivalent. So it had a big giant lead mm-hmm, acid battery mm-hmm. in it. Really, really nice. <laughs> All right. So uh, so you post, posted another link here from Joe uh, Sapinski uh, about uh, Touch Bar design. Yeah. I mean, so we're just speaking of, the, of stuff like the MacBooks, the MacBook Pro, it's got a, a post here about the kinds of things you might want to keep in mind and using the app uh, X2Y on there on terms of like what might you do if you're creating a Touch Bar experience. And I think this is handy not only for folks who are looking to create Mac apps, but as we talked about on the previous show, there's a lot of smoke right now. Then maybe there's a fire that's saying, hey, um, we might have something like a touch bar sort of experience available to iOS users or the new iPhone. That it, it may not have a physical home button in that bottom row if it's basically an ex- either an extension of the screen or it is at least a touch capable area, very similar to the touch bar. You can kind of imagine that you could have you know, a touch bar, toolbar kind of experience there. And I think a lot of these same principles will apply, right? So Joe's talking about, hey, probably don't want to try shoving in every possible thing that a user might do in your app because one, <laughs> that's too many things, right? Like that's just too much to take in. And two, if, if some of those aren't really applicable to the current workflow they're in, and, and he gives the example of, okay, you know, you take the mail app, you know, on, on, on Mac OS, for example, it's very different workflow if you're composing an email versus triaging emails, right? And you would probably want different sorts of touch bar shortcuts for that. And while you're at it, you know, if people remember, you know, keyboard shortcuts, that sort of thing, like, you know, if you're in a text editor, of course you hit command S and it saves the file. Great. That probably doesn't really need a touch bar shortcut, but a change the alignment of everything so that it, um, you know, it refolds itself properly, re-indents itself properly. I'm not going to remember what that keyboard shortcut is. And I'm, I'm sure there are people who do, but I sure would love to have a button that says, you know, fix format sort of thing. And I think that's sort of the gist that I get out of this article. Yeah, I, I can tell you that I've used the um, the touch bar for a number of months now. And, um, you know, I don't use it quite as often as you'd think. But, um, and like one thing I, one of my pet peeves about the mail app is they, they put the send button right above the, between the one and the two key on the keyboard. And if you're a little sloppy typer, you can actually end up hitting send on your email before you're ready to, to uh, actually send it, which is kind of annoying. Um, yeah, because I mean, like, like, but you're, you know, the things that are there are kind of cool and, and um, customizing them or even writing for them would be, would be something to think about right yeah you don't want to just reproduce what's there maybe you have some some power shortcuts or something like that that you could use right in that case mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i haven't really played much with xcode but i've heard people say some good things about xcode with, with the touch bar but i haven't figured out what those what those are myself 
Anyway, but that's cool. Yeah, people can read about that and uh, see what Joe has to say about that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's things like, you know, scrubbing through. Uh, I mean, Joe Joe uh, was, I think he was mentioning that he, I think he uses Logic Pro when he edits the, the Release Notes podcast. And uh, he was saying the touch bar and the things they put in the touch bar there are really nice. But uh, in my case, I don't have, I can't take advantage of that. I hope that Apple does come up with some sort of, you know, um, extended keyboard or whatever that has a uh, touch bar in it that can interface into some of the older Macs as well, right? That'd be kind of cool, don't you think? It'd be really nice. And I'm, I'm not really sure how they'd handle, you know, this concept that folks have. So, like, I have one of those nifty wireless Bluetooth keyboards. It, I can imagine, like, hey, it'd be nice to have a touch bar there, and it would be super nice to have Touch ID enabled in there as well, right? I'm using an older MacBook Pro that um, I might upgrade. I mean, it'd be great to have Touch ID, but, you know, I, I haven't figured out how they would do it. it. Maybe it ends up working the same way that the, um, you know, you could do the Apple Pay stuff, you know, by using, was it your watch? possibly your phone, you know, from the right, Safari yeah, browser, yeah. you know, if assuming you don't actually have the Touch ID um, MacBook Pro, um, you know, the, the new Touch Bar MacBook Pro that has it. I think that'd be really cool. It probably pairs up and says, hey, look, the, the same way that my Apple Watch has its own little trusted platform chip, you know, secure enclave that will, you know, handle the Touch ID handshake or the uh, authentication handshake. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't your... You know, I don't even have to have my watch, my, my, my phone with can't, me. You, you can unlock your um, your computer with your watch. That's what I do at home sometimes. But I find that actually, I can type the password faster than it actually unlocks but i could just you know i wish i could do that my sadly my model of macbook pro is old enough to be just outside oh, really? the the range that what year is it that. yeah I, I checked up which is uh let me double check this let's hit the so i have Mac a 2013 here. macbook yes. air and, and mine mine does offer to unlock with my watch but i can tell you working with touch id at work you know on my computer at work and like even things like authorizing you know stuff all the day, all day long like you know you ask your sure admin password um just that alone i must you know use touch id like probably 10 times a day uh, on the computer at work and i come home at night and i'm like ah, i gotta type my password into one password like an animal to open one password you know and so but, right but right. I, and i let's see here uh, to to answer your question because i just found it it is a macbook pro retina mid 2012 oh, right. second generation I think the late retina? 2012 right. was the was the first one that yeah. um, allows you to unlock with the watch so Sadly, I'm I'm not participating in the, the grand future that you are. So I, I definitely should right. think about it. Well, that's the second generation right now. Well, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that um, back in 2010, I went to an Apple event here for consultants. Um, I forget what they called it, but um, they they brought a security Apple security guy up, and and he was showing us that. Um, and that was back in you probably remember this, like card readers, and you know, like the the, the cards you used to swipe to get in in and out of doors and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, fingerprint scanners and things like that um with with oh with mac, mac os and this is going back to like you know i don't know that would have been jaguar i guess probably um all you have to do is plug a device into a usb and configure it and you can use whatever the, the software security chips within your device your, in your mac and in that device itself the the you know the accessory that you add to it so it is conceivable that they could do something like a touch id or even well because you can use fingerprint scanners right like i said but you know mm-hmm. and they provide mm-hmm. like it's built into the os it automatically configures and it's sort of like this you know it's meant for enterprise use and it's meant to be so totally secure and all that kind of stuff not the same as a secure, secure enclave of course but but still the fact that you know so I, I every time i go to enter my password here at home and thinking like why hasn't somebody come up with a device where i can just use like my fingerprint or maybe maybe somebody if, if apple goes to this you know 3d uh infrared scan of your face in in the iphone 8 maybe somebody will come up with a hardware device that you can 
put on the top of your monitor and scan your face to authenticate you as well, right? So it's not without precedent. Um, Windows 10 has a feature very similar. I forget they call it like hello or something where <laughs> it will use the webcam to scan your face. And like, oh, yeah, that's how I made. Let me go ahead and authenticate. Right, right. But even mm-hmm. for like things like admin passwords and stuff like that, right? It would be kind of uh, handy to have, right? So indeed. You know, just on a, a sidebar here, sidebar note for a minute. Um, I think I was talking about, I mentioned before that I've been looking at the enterprise management of Macs. And um, one of the challenges for, for having Macs in an enterprise environment where they need to be managed is, you know, what about what about sudo and what about, you know, admin access? And in a, in a managed environment, you don't, you, you know, as much as you trust your users and stuff like that, you really don't want all the users to rampantly have access, admin access, right? So one of the cool things that I found out from Apple was there's a developer group or developer. So you can like, and this is underscore developer built in, you know how there's like, I don't know if you know, there's like www for web web development stuff or web access stuff if you're running a web server there's root of course and there's a bunch of other super users that you know there's one that handles mail and all that kind of stuff postfix and things like that right or postman or something but there's a developer group mm-hmm. that you can add users to that gives them enough a- admin access that they can continue to do development type activities but not give them admin access to the, to the platform had you heard of that before i hadn't yeah that's kind so, of interesting. so the- it's a group that's already built into into mac os that lets uh, developers have that kind of access. So, yeah, I'm still looking into that to myself. I, I just literally found out about a couple of weeks ago, but I haven't had time to sort of dig into it. But just thought it'd be interesting to, to point out here since we're talking about security and Touch ID and stuff. Again, it's a security show. <laughs> yeah, we have to, we have to, maybe we'll play the safety dancer as our opening, opening music or something. Or do you not remember that reference? <laughs> you can dance if you want to. <laughs> oh, yeah. The safety dance. All right. Okay, so are we there? Are we at the pick point of the show? Where, where, where are we here? Time for the pick Yeah, I think so. I think we can wrap it up Pictola. with some picks here. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm sorry, folks. I guess it sounds like this must be the Matthias Holman show because once again, Matthias has come up with another awesome tool for us on his GitHub page. And that is he's written a, um, a CocoaPod or, or a Cartage set, or I think you can download them directly, a bunch of Core ML helpers. We're back on the Core ML bandwagon. And I just went through uh, um, a tutorial, a quick tutorial on um, how to do uh, Core ML with Vision Framework on uh, I think it's on the Raywinder like site. Um, and, you know, you sort of have to go through and build, a, you have to add the vision calls and stuff like that and, and how they're going to get handled. And what Matthias has done here is he simplified that by creating this Core ML helpers, um, I don't know what you call it, what do you call it, CocoaPod framework, whatever, that ha- helps you with the handling of images because images have to be put into CV pixel buffers and, uh, you know, using vision and stuff like that, as I, as I mentioned. So he's got this um, this sort of shorthand way of dealing with these these things. And it's just a simple as a matter of, you know, adding the CocoaPod to your project or the Carthage, whatever you call those things to your project. Um, and even uh, do, deals with the machine learning multi-array or ML multi-array types uh, that you need to use to do. Um, and he his he says his, his version of it is better. So that's the core ML helpers on GitHub under Matthias, which is nickname is Holance. Uh, hmm, no, it's Holance. Anyway, that's his, uh, his shorthand name there. So we'll put a link in the show notes for that. 
I don't know if you have you poked around at all with uh, any of this stuff yet. I mean, with the iOS 11 new frameworks. You know, I got to admit, I have had a very busy summer, and I, I, I've not. I've been very negligent in this respect. But this sort of thing was is great because one thing that I did notice, having viewed a few of the sessions, I'm like, mm, it's kind of not super typical if you're doing you know day to day iOS apps to deal with uh, CV image buffer, CV pixel buffer, and a few other ones. You, you generally tend to spend a lot of your time in right, UI image, yeah. right? I mean, for sure, if you're doing, you know, like your Photoshop equivalent app or you're doing a, cam- a very, you know, camera specific app, you might. But if you're doing just about any other kind of app, you probably are dealing with UI image. So it, it can be a little weird to get into. And there's sometimes different rules about like, oh, okay, we well, you got to make sure this thing is in the right orientation and you have to make sure that it's like in the right color space too, I think. And having these sorts of things that sort of abstract that away for you, um, not to say it's, it's not good to know those things, but, you know, if your whole purpose is to get to the meat of the core ML sort of goodies, it's kind of unfortunate to have that oh, that that extra bar, that extra stumbling yeah, block yeah. Um, to get off you know off the ground. And of course, you can go back and look. And this is open source; you can go and look yourself and say, "Oh, exactly, what are they doing here?" and, and get a better idea, right? Like the CV pixel buffers plus helpers. I'm looking at it, and I, okay, okay, oh, okay, cool. I, I kind of get an idea what, what's going on there. But the best part is, I wouldn't have had to do that the extra little bit of learning prior to getting to the part I was looking to learn. It's more like something I can explore, you know, as time allows. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and like, you know, like I said, in, in I want to go back to that tutorial and, and strip out the uh, the extra stuff and stick this uh, CoreML helper in, and then see uh, what what a difference it makes or any of that kind of stuff. Because because it's pretty simple. I mean, like the the Vision Framework. If people aren't really familiar with that, what that is, it helps you deal with with images and. Um, has a whole bunch of machine learning um, tools and set that Apple has provided for you to deal with images. So if you want to, like, you know, put up an image of a flower and say what type of flower it is or what, or have it predict what the flower is or to categorize the flower, that kind of stuff, right? These are the kind of things you do with machine learning. But the vision framework helps you handle the images in the sort of machine language kind of way, right? So <laughs> my second pick is uh, I, we talked about uh, Christoph Zalablocki last week. He's the author of sorcery and i was telling one of the guys at work about sorcery and he pointed out to me i think we might have talked about this before i don't remember but i'd completely forgotten about it but you know we have swift playgrounds well um christoph Solaki has written an objective c playground right so it works with objective c and swift um and apparently he claims at the time he was writing this a few years ago yeah it's two three years old but um he says that uh, it, it, at the time i guess at the time it was working better than and the swift plugins by themselves but it's kind of cool that you could work with objective c as well as uh, you know play around in a sort of playground kind of way right so for those of you who are still doing objective c like some of us yeah i mean it's not always practical to migrate everything in a project immediately to swift um and if you're there in a sort of blended environment or heck maybe you're not even in a swift environment maybe you're in an Objective-C only land, it's really nice to have that option of getting that um, that REPL style environment of, you know, just I make a change and this thing immediately refreshes instead of having to fire up an right. app or something. It definitely helps, like for his example here where you're doing UI stuff, That that's the sort of thing that drives me nuts um, in the current sort of setup for iOS stuff, that if you're not doing a playground-oriented sort of thing, it, it gets kind of rough having to fire up an app and like navigate your way to some particular spot just to see if, you know, the blue box 
box moved two right. pixels to the left like you wanted it to. Yeah, so that's cool. If you're uh, still mired in the Objective-C world and you're... And you th- I mean, like the fact we I mean, we were talking about this last night, uh, that, you know, even though the last commit was what... Uh, what did we say it was? Um, last commit was... Uh, oh, just back in December, six months ago, I guess, right? Or, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah 78 so, commits. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's like uh, Objective-C hasn't really evolved, unfortunately, that much, that, uh, that it really needs to sort of keep up with the times. But yeah, so if you're... Or even if you're interested in learning some Objective-C, maybe this is another way to get into it, right? So, yeah. Because so I think I was talking to a developer the other day who was saying that, you know, he's he wants to do Swift all the time, but uh, he, uh, so he doesn't, he kind of like skipped past the whole Objective-C thing. But, you know, when you come, when you get into working with large code bases, you can't really avoid it, right? Indeed. Yep. Indeed. So that's my second pick. So what, what uh, have you got in the way of picks there, Hamid? I have one here and it's sort of a, it's sort of a mega pick if you really think about it. It's a singular link. It is called Realm Academy. Realm, of course, is the company that has the, well, I guess it was a, you know, a, a NoSQL style sort of database, but now it's it's really more than that, right? Because they have their whole syncing engine. But in this circumstance, what I'm talking about is they've collected a lot of this sort of, you know, great talks and presentations sort of thing. Uh, many of these, of course, are host have been hosted at their own mm-hmm. location um, and, and made available. Like I'm on their mailing list and I, I get these, you know, these wonderful, um, you know, conference things that have happened at their place or some sort of, you know, meetup group has, you know, had some event at their realm office. Um, this seems like it's way more than just that. Um, you can have different learning paths like, oh, you want to know about different programming paradigms in iOS? Great. They've got a whole topic filled with tons of videos for that. Um, it's cross-platform as well in terms of, are you an Android developer looking to get into the Kotlin programming language? Guess what? They have a whole section related to that. Uh, of course, they've got a section there for their own stuff, like, you know, learn how to use Realm and, and, and use the product. That's fantastic. But if you're looking to do other things like, hey, guess what? I want to get into React style programming with RX Swift. And well, there's, I don't know, what are there, like seven videos here that I see on there. And there's architectural pattern ones and JavaScript related ones and just a ton of stuff that you could probably never right, watch right. them all. It's just so fantastic that there's this nice, easy resource there. So I highly recommend this will be in the show notes for those you drive it home. So go, go check it out. Go see some of these paths. And if you find anything that you think is something that we should bring to people's attention on the show, hit us up on Twitter at, um, you know, at MTJC underscore podcast or use hashtag ask MTJC to say, hey, here's a really cool video that I Yeah, found. and there's lots of friends of the show, you know, and friends of mine and friends of Jaime's that are uh, in some of these talks, like Ryan Nystrom and Greg Hio and Graham Lee and Natasha the Robot and, of course, Marin Todorov, who works at Realm as well. So uh, lots of cool stuff. Yeah, and then they've got all the alt comp videos as well, because I guess they must have uh, dealt with those. Um, you know, they even have JavaScript ones. Ooh. Zammer that I'm looking here. Kotlin, Kotlin as well. Kind of uh, another a, conference, DroidCon, DroidCon Boston 2017, which was an Android one, of course. Right, yeah. yeah. Kotlin in depth, they've got quite a few uh, Kotlin tutorials here. Hmm. Things that make you see. Hmm. Oh, got Daniel Steinberg in there. He's a great, uh, great talker, speaker. Um, yeah, definitely somewhere. And this is these are all sort of things we've talked about on the show, some of these uh, talks, right? I like the, the Ryan... You know, um, developing at scale, I think was one he wrote, which is about the, um, Oh, is that on there? The yeah. kit one for Instagram? Yeah, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, that's there. Um, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, um, um, i his name now, Rumbly, I think from, uh, Apptentive. There's some guy talking about 13 ways of looking at view controllers, you know, he's got these sort of, these, you know, five things that, you know, secret people don't want you to know. 
yeah. So yeah, it's good, good stuff. It looks in Orta's there. You know, one of the main guys behind Coco Pods. So Orta, I don't know what's his last name. Orta Thoro, I think. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's it for the week, eh, Hame? So uh, what are we doing next, Hame? What's what's up for us in the very immediate future? You and I will be giving a talk at 360 iDev in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, and so will Tammy Coron will be giving a talk in, at 360 iDev in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, and, that uh, was a, 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 a sudden last change that was, was fantastic. It's a, it's a nice surprise. It's a, This is a dramatic moment when the surprise witness shows up at the trial mm, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it should have been more of a surprise. But that said, so if you're, raise your hand if you're going to 360 iDev, okay. Um, <laughs> we should do that in, the, in our talk to make people raise their hands and sort of, you know, so we can get a pulse of the room. But anyway, um, if you know what I mean. So one of the things we're going to be doing probably, we'll be recording because we always record on, you know, normally on Wednesday nights, but we'll be recording on probably on a Tuesday night when we're at 360 iDev. And uh, I think all four of us, uh, myself, I may, Mark, and Tammy will be in the room doing a live recording of More Than Just Code podcast. So if you're around uh, in the area, you know, uh, definitely come and see us do that if you can, if we can figure out where to, we're going to do it. <laughs> right, honey? Indeed. Yeah. So, hey, honey, if people want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they look. The best place is on Twitter. I am at Dev with a hair. All right. And I am Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. And that's the best way to get a hold of me on Twitter as well. So until next week, which will be, not won't be broadcast live, but it will be recorded live uh, at 360 iDev in Denver. Until then, we will say adieu. Goodbye. Bye. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find out the details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. about him starting and stopping the recording i mean like from a from a guest point of view it's pretty straightforward right you just i send you a link you open it and presto change over on the show right yeah i i really like that yeah. if, if this had some sort of ability to do live broadcasting as well in some future yeah. that would be pretty cool too well you know that that's a good point so well here's the thing i was i was um i saw a tweet by a fellow podcaster what is his name here shout oh uh the podcast is, or the the gentleman is his handle on twitter is not there yet and i think his podcast is not there yet but he did a piece on why he thought apple was getting into podcasting right because we talked about this at three six or at uh, wwdc when they had the podcasting studio and i talked to somebody at apple you mm-hmm. know my friend who works for apple canada was telling me that the the podcast studio was booked solid right and and it was like you know each person had like an hour to get in there and get their thing done and um uh it was very very popular
particular uh, venue, right, to do podcasting. So the theory is that, you know, Apple's getting more involved in, in um, like, I've always complained that, that podcasting is kind of a black box with Apple because it grew out of, it sort of grew as a grassroots sort of thing out of the iPod itself, right? Um, yeah. And they just, I guess they just must have made this way of, you know, doing these sort of, what do you call it, cable access TV show kind of, you know, record your own podcast, gra- you know, grow your own podcast kind of thing. And they're, one of the promises in, in um, that they added in just before WWDC is the, the fact that we can now register our podcast with them and, and create like an account for it like we do with an app, right? So when I log into my mm-hmm. iTunes account, I also see, I don't just see my my, my apps, I also see the podcast. And, and eventually there's going to be some analytics being thrown in there. I think we talked about that or they talked about that at WWDC, right? Um, so it sounds it sounds like they may be, you know, taking podcasting a little bit more seriously, right? And, and it's, you know, podcasting is growing leaps and bounds, right? Uh, I'm seeing yeah. more and more tech podcasts, you know, uh, they come and they go, but, you know, a lot of Swift podcasts. And I think people who are the sort of what I consider the pundits of the industry are getting into podcasting quite a bit, right? You know, I mean, beyond, you know, Daniel Jalkett and Menton Reese and Joseph Linsky and Charles Perry, you know, and of course, you know, the the Accidental Talk Tech Podcast folks, um, you know, there's quite a few, uh, what's Build, what's the one that your buddy from Texas uh, is in? Um, I don't think somebody closed the door. <laughs> um, what was his name? Dan, Dave. David Oaken? Was that who you're? No, it's a guy from Texas. He had a big tattoo of Texas on his forearm or his bicep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, he, he, they do. Uh, I see his uh, face. Oh, my God. What He, he worked on the Swift Argo, um, the JSON uh, parsing thing. What's his name? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm totally drawing a blank on him. Anyway, he, he has a podcast he does with somebody somebody else. So it's like build build environment. Or run, it's not like run loop. It's like the... It's, it has something to do with building apps, right? Or, or running builds. Right. Um, yeah, I think I, maybe if I go to iTunes, I can look at it, look at see it again. But anyway, he, you know, there's him and then there, like there's more and more people getting into podcasting. And, and of course, you know, on the radio side, you know, uh, Strombo has his own radio show, but some of the people that, that he works with are starting to do podcasts as well. Like uh, there's a gentleman named um, Bob Makowitz who's been long time in radio, but he's more sports radio. So he's got a sports podcast now that they started up a couple of months ago. And I mean, you know, when a, when a celebrity gets into podcasting, one that sort of says that's good for podcasting, but it's also makes it more challenging for the rest of us to sort of grab audience attention. Right. So, and all of our CBC uh, TV sh- or CBC radio shows, you know, which, cause radio is, I think radio is kind of suffering the same thing that newspaper and magazines did for a while where as everything got digital and, you know, we have this whole YouTube culture, um, radio, like live radio, bro- live broadcast radio is kind of becoming a thing of the past. People aren't sitting down and listening to the radio when the show's on. So rather than do that, they, you know, a lot of these shows are taped and then they, so they publish the show as a podcast. So, um, Mm -hmm. there's one podcast I listen to, which is normally on at 11 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And I'm, I'm in, I'm hip deep in in editing a podcast, but like on Thursday night, they publish the podcast. I can listen to it ahead of time, or I can listen to it anytime during the week, right? Kind of thing. Right. And there's another, um, uh, sort of tech podcast called, uh, Spark, which I listen to as well. And that's normally published on Sunday live, but it's a podcast as well. So a lot of our CBC radio shows are now becoming podcasts and you can, you know, they advertise during the show that you can, you know, listen to it on Sirius radio, or you can listen on CBC radio across the country, 
or download the podcast kind of thing, right? So there's even a podcast show on CBC where they where they review podcasts. So and it, <laughs> it's good, starting to get a little meta there. Yeah, well, when you start having stuff that reviews it its own, and and I get what you're saying. Like NPR puts just about every one of their radio broadcasts right, on it. Like right. I listen to. Um, Looks like Planet Money is great. I have no clue when that show comes out, like live. I, so I don't need to know. I don't. I don't. I don't care. Right. Like the beautiful thing about podcasting as opposed to radio is that it's time shift, and I can listen when I'm available. Right. Like maybe I'm not available at, at uh, I don't know Tuesdays from two to three p.m. Eastern. Well, okay, uh, I can listen to this when I'm walking my dog or mowing the lawn or doing yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, and I think we've found that a lot of our fans do the same thing too. Right. I mean, we we could hypothetically do you know live streaming, and I'm sure there would be a number of folks to do that but i mean that's not something that everybody can do and that's not something that everybody wants to do and even just time zone stuff right we have fans in russia and brazil and all these other places that aren't exactly you know good times to you know sit and listen right like e- even when we record it's like okay well let's find something that's not too difficult for the east and west coast much less oh guess what it's like three in the morning when the podcast right. <laughs> podcast yeah. starts over in like zimbabwe yeah. or something right like <laughs> that's brutal it's much better for some folks to just you know listen when they have the time and availability. So here's something we don't talk. We haven't talked about this on the show before, but since we're in the after show, we'll probably get on the show. But so you know how you can search in iTunes uh, for iOS development, and and more than just code comes up like number one worldwide, and has for like the last year and a half, right? Mm-hmm. You know that, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. I'm telling people there who don't know about it. I just searched for Swift development, and guess what? What we come up third. We come up third. That's actually not too bad because there are podcasts with Swift in their name. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see here uh where this is so bad i don't use the apple podcast app i use <laughs> well I'm, I use using, I'm using itunes it's i'm using itunes itself like the itunes app on my Mac. all right let me let me try this yeah, swift yeah oh this is an interesting list so yes we oh, do come out Canada. third but number one for me when i see here is ios dev break with evan k stone right yeah uh yep. let it out with katie dalebout uh, a Who's holistic <laughs> a holistic health lover uh, apparently oh, okay um yeah. and then more than just code is third there right right but in the list of episodes we were like we have uh, four shows listed there that's great but again i don't know how people how people actually search for stuff and actually i think we we're i can't remember who i was talking to about the um i think i was talking to you guys about the statistics and and oh no it was on it was on uh, that that podcast i was talking about it was a rather interesting little piece and i retweeted it because i thought it was if people are into podcasting and a few people are they would uh, be interested in this piece because he also uses um yeah it's his ny essays is the account yeah not there yet oh and and T-Y, duh. <laughs> um, but he's um, he's got this little podcast where he does a blog, and then it, uh, uh, I think he uses Fireside, and it's a short blog, and then to, to listen to the rest of the blog, you click on it and listen to his podcast, right? Um, and it's just a short thing. It's like, I think it's maybe 12 minutes. And one of the things he was talking about was was uh, the metrics of downloads. And, and, you know, I think we've talked about this before. It's like, I, you know, if I publish at noon on sun- Saturday by about 2 or 3 in the afternoon, I can start to see, you know, three, four hundred uh, episodes have been downloaded, right? And a lot of those are um, clients like Overcast and Podcast App and, you know, I don't know what the other podcasters, catchers do, like Castro and that kind of stuff, but they download the shows in the background while, again, we're talking about backgrounding at the top of the show, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, so that that may, that isn't necessarily somebody actually watching um, or listening to the show. That's just their podcaster downloading it. But by, by the next day, you know, we've got like 1,300, 1,400, 
up to 2000, you know, people have listened to the show over a week or two. Right. So, but he was saying that a lot of those early numbers are just the automation of, of apps or apps downloading. And people may have forgotten that they, at one point, clicked the subscribe thing in, in Overcast. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I only have about five or six shows that I'm actually subscribed to on Overcast. I don't, you know, ours included in Tammy's, right? But uh, Oh, wow. That's that's actually knows. quite different for me, Tim. I have yeah. uh, a real-time follow-up. I'll count them and then I'll say. No, but, but go ahead and continue because I think that that's actually quite interesting because, like, when you look at the stats, you, you kind of have to be on the pure downloads, right? Be on pure numbers, right? Just like there's a seasonality to a lot of businesses. There right. is a life cycle for right. podcast downloads is what I'm hearing. Right, right. So so what I have in my, you know, I have, I have like, I guess six podcasts that I'm subscribed to. Sorry, seven. So I have, you know, I have Mac Power users, which I just, I, have, I don't always listen to them. Uh, then I've got the Macowitz uh, show that I just talked about, Maco and Cause podcast, and I've only listened to a couple of episodes. I'm not a big sports guy, so I probably will unsubscribe from that at some point in the future. Uh, Taggart and Torrens, um, and then of course Under the Influence, which is the um, Terry O'Reilly show that I talked about. And then I have a bunch of uh, shows in the backlog that I just, you know, I have them here. I, I may listen to them from time to time. Like I've got uh, Accidental Tech podcast, Coco Comp, Core Intuition, um, More Than Just Code, Playgrounds uh, podcast, because I think Greg was on that one, Podcast Method, which is uh, Dan Benjamin's old podcast, right? Um, mm-hmm. Agile Betty, so I, haven't, I apologize, I haven't been listening to that one. <laughs> Ray Winderlake, which is in, in hiatus, hiatus right now, you know, Roundabout, uh, Swift Coders, which I just started listening to Swift, Swift Coders since I was on the show, and then a podcast called WTF by Mark Marin, who's a comedian, does interesting stuff. That's what I have in my, in my podcast that what do you have in yours tim the, i counted them up you, you don't want me to enumerate them like you just did it is 47 47 so do you listen to how many podcasts do you listen to a week i have no idea because the thing about these 47 subscriptions i'd have to look through and see some of these haven't updated for a while so i don't recall if they're on hiatus you know just like the ray render like one has a season to it that they they go on a break right, for yeah. a while and they, then they do i don't know 10 ish 12 ish episodes probably in a row um maybe more uh some of these are for like tv shows that that are on hiatus right now, like the Supergirl TV talk, like that's not going to start up mm-hmm. again until August, or it's not, not August, uh, until the autumn when the show goes back on the CW again. Um, of course, there's, you know, big ones that you might expect, like um, the talk show with John Gruber. I mentioned Planet Money. Of course, we've got Roundabout and Orange Just Code, release notes, uh, all sorts of random things like How Did This Get Made, which is a, a fun comedy one, uh, a Star Trek one called The Greatest Generation, which is absolutely fantastic. They, they have Wait, so which is the greatest generation? That is Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation is what they're covering. And they have gone, uh, they're they're almost done. They're in the seventh season now. They have gone episode by episode giving sort of uh, recaps and great comedy takes on the various episodes. And apparently okay. soon they'll be doing the same with Deep Space Nine. So it has wow. got me wondering, it's like, wow, it would be kind of cool to do like a Star Trek Voyager one and maybe even a Star Trek Discovery one because that show is about to start relatively soon. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I was watching Star Trek on Netflix. I just noticed it's on Netflix now. I used to watch that all the time when I was a kid, right? Because it was in reruns constantly. Um, but you know what really bothers me about Star Trek as it is now? They've gone through and they've made them all mm-hmm. high res, right? They've all you know, res them all up, and I guess they were because they were originally done on film. But they they George Lucas the the outdoor shots of this of the you know they had all those models and those you know um, planets that they would orbit. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like hokey, but they were believable somehow, you know, because they were they weren't motion capture or whatever. They were actually really 
necessarily, you know, objects that were filmed in, in, in uh, a studio. They've gone through and they've redone all this. Even, even the title part, you know, where the, where the, sh- the, sh- the ship comes whipping by, you know, really quickly, you know. Um, there was some, there was a naivete to those original kind of um, special effects that I really liked. And I really, I don't like the fact that they've changed all those with, uh, with new 3D effects. I, I talked about this on Roundabout a couple of weeks ago, but uh, what do you think about that? Have you watched the new Star Trek at all? Or I don't think I've seen, like I haven't sat down and watched I'm those. talking about Kirk and Spock and those guys. Oh no, I've sure. seen those, but what you're talking about is the... Um, special edition sort of style of, yeah, of, yeah. of updated graphics. Yeah, I don't I think I've hope, seen you know, exactly. episodes with the updated graphics. I'd have to check and see, but that's definitely the they sort came of out thing. with a box set on DVD or Blu-ray a couple of years ago, a couple of three years ago. Now they're on Netflix, right? So, I, I you know, again, you know, Greedo didn't shoot first, right? Yeah, I mean, that was like <laughs> full-on changing the story. In this case, it's uh, they've not changed the story. They've changed the special effects, so they're hypothetically like not as embarrassing as they might have been to, like, you know, modern eyes, but I think think for fans that remember the original look i think it'd be nice if they offered both um yeah it would be i'm yeah. reminded of the what was it it's like the 10 year anniversary edition of um microsoft's xbox game called halo first right, person yeah. shooter thing where that 10th anniversary edition or whatever or legacy edition whatever it was called offered high-res graphics or you know modern pcs they're just beasts compared to what an xbox would have been back in the early 2000s right yeah and yet yeah, also had like a mode where you could switch it back to, well, this is the original graphics. And it was really cool how you could just literally press a button and live switch between them to see how did they change the character models? How did they change colors? How did they change patterns? That sort of thing. And not saying you would do that during an episode, but it sure would be nice if you had a Netflix option of like, which one do you want to see? The original version? Or do you want to see the up you know, greater uh, use of CGI sort of version? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's well, I mean, they've done the same thing on Turner Classic Movies. I've been watching a lot of um, movies like like uh, they had, you know, Hitchcock movies or whatever. But yeah, it's kind of it's it's sad that like my I guess my point is this: when I go to the Met, uh, the museum Museum of Modern Art in New York City and I walk up to the Damoiselle d'Avignon painting by Picasso, I don't want to see somebody's gone in and touched it up. I want to see the actual piece of art that that creator's hand created at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So warts and all, I want I want the original Star Trek that I remember when I was a kid because I watched it a thousand times and it bothers me. Every time I watch that show, you know, that every time they cut away to like, you know, the, the transition pieces, which is showing the ship, you know, orbiting the planet or what have you just, you know, no, I want, I want my Star Trek. Right. So I get, no? so let's break that down like, a little like, bit. So I, yeah. it sounds like there's some aspect of um, nostalgia that you want to see it as you re- remember it. But I also heard in there a little bit of like the artists respecting the artist, the original artist. So how does that play into, you also mentioned Greedo. Well, that is the original artist and creator who specifically made that change like what where do you fall on the the spectrum right. for improvement well yeah no and i and I, t- I totally object to that 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 change because i actually have on dvd an original copy of star wars the movie star wars it's not called a new hope doesn't say new hope on on the crawler at the beginning you know and it's the original warts and all print that i saw in 1977 right and it's only on dvd right there's no there's never been any blu-ray copy of it or high 
res enhanced or whatever. That's the actual physical movie mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. seeing. And that's, you know, because, you know, when they came, when I think it went to VHS, they added a new hope as if, you know, and there was some talk about whether there was intended to be three movies or whatever. He was thinking of doing three movies. But at the time, you know, he had just done like American Graffiti and, you know, uh, that THX thing that he did. Um, what was the other thing he did? George Lucas. He hadn't done very right. many movies, right? And, and uh, you know, they, and even he didn't think Star Wars was going to be all that when, when he did it, right? But, uh, yeah, so now there's this whole like, you know, lore and Disney owns them and, you know, there's all these books been written and this whole universe has been expanded. I'm sorry. Give me a break. The guy just wrote, you know, got lucky with with a with a, a film draft, which is like a western, sure. you know, like like star, like just and written on the sort of the what do you call it, the um, Joseph Campbell um, myth and legend kind of theory, right? So how do you feel? So I I, I definitely understand the artist thing, uh, like your example of you know uh, somebody taking a Picasso painting and going in and, and touching it up some way. But what if it was Picasso himself using that as analogy for like what George Lucas has done with uh, the Star Wars? Well, see, side. here's the thing, Picasso. Also was a true artist, right? He wouldn't have gone into a painting he did in 1913, in 1950, and and touched it up again. He would have done a variation on that painting in 1950. He would have left the original one alone. In fact, at that point in time, he didn't even own it. So I guess it's kind of moot point, right? But yeah. okay, so so like on the principle of the thing, you're you're definitely against artists going in and changing their art once it's been uh, released to the world. Is that sort of the yeah? The I mean, like line? like like it's it's you know um, like I look at I look at the the whole movie industry and you know whole recorded music industry and you know television as you know in their purest form they were expressions of creativity at the time with the best tools that were available right i mean so yeah if you want to go in and make a special version now that we have the technology to do a better star wars movie make another movie tell me a different story leave the original one alone right like like i kind of equate the original star wars movie like a new hope as we call it now to something like, you know, uh, Scarlet Pimpernel or Robin Hood or because it had that, you know, or even Flash Gordon, it had that kind of feel of being a Saturday morning serial movie, right? Like I used to actually go to see those serial movies when I was really a little kid, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, you, I, have you ever seen the black and white Flash Gordons that are, you know, they used to sometimes show them and, and they were, you know, it was kind of like, you know, episode four and, you know, they give you a recap of what's happened in the past and so you can just get right into the story. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, it, that right? the Star Wars has that feel very intentionally. That was a huge influence, uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon type stuff. Yeah, it was intended to be that, and and it was, but it was just sort of like you know, hey, we discovered this film canister in the back of this you know cinema, and let's put it on and watch it, and that's kind of sort of where Star Wars mm-hmm. starts, right? Um, and it's an homage to all those kind of serial serial movies, right? And it's got that sort of crude, and it wasn't intentional. It's got that sort of crude um, uh, style to it, like the acting is kind of like you know. Luke Skywalker or Mark Hamill talking to Alex Guinness is a little wooden when he first, you know, oh, here's the lightsaber your father yeah. intended you to have, right? And then it was all this sort of loose, you know, dialogue that that these actors said at the time. Um, I forget what was this famous quote. I think it was by Harrison Ford that says something about um, he, he said he talk, he said back to George Lucas, like, you know, it's all well and good for you to write this stuff, but have you ever tried yeah. saying it to somebody? Because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's awful, right? 
Um, I, I, I think the story too is like, so I went and saw Star Wars on the third, on the th- when Friday night. Movies used to come out on Thursday night back in the back then, and they would they would stay in a th- in a theater for like you know twelve weeks if it was a good movie. They wouldn't move around from theater to theater, right? But um, so I went with my girlfriend on Friday, and then so I, I was so blown away by this movie. I try and I had a bunch of guys that I hung out with, you know, at, at, you know, at one of the guys' houses, and I spent all day Saturday trying to convince these guys to go see this movie, right? And then Sunday. They, you know, they capitulated. We went and saw the, you know, seven o'clock showing at a different theater downtown. And I remember listening to C-3PO and R2-D2 talking to each other after they just landed on Tatooine and, and they're talking, you know, and he's like, go that way. You'll be lost in a moment. You know, all that, that scene where mm-hmm. they're sort of arguing that sort of, and thinking, this is crap. Like, well, my friends are going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen, because now that I've actually had, you know, the two days to sort of, and go back and listen to the dialogue, it was so, I was like, oh my God, my friends are going to think I'm, I'm stupid. Thankfully, you know, they blew up the Death Star every time. So it was like, you know, you know, people were like cheering and throwing popcorn in the air and whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know that, that that kind of diverges from what you're saying, but, but that's the kind of, to me, that's the sentiment of Star Wars. Don't mess with it. Just leave it alone. You know, it's finished. I, I think I've told this story before, but my, my art teacher in high school used to say every artist needs somebody behind them with a sledgehammer. Hit the artist on the head when he's done. <laughs> right. So, so right. Tim, how far does the that artist, go? So, uh, so well, I, I can tell you, as an artist, you you're never satisfied with your work, and that's what drives us to create more works, right? Is that you know you create one like I look at paintings I did when I was 20, and I kind of go, yeah, I could have done that better, or there's a glaring mistake I made there. I hope nobody ever really notices, or hope nobody gets out a protractor and measures the angles on this thing, and I, you know, um, right? So I know there's like an egregious level of things like um, Steven Spielberg going back into ET and saying, oh no, uh, let's yeah, digitally. No those guns and him put walkie-talkies there and let's change the the flavor of that that scene okay that's one sort of tinkering what about remastering as an example so you know star wars in 1977 was yeah you know like the most what, basic what of stereo I... if that and uh, the audio was definitely not uh thx right. whatever the yeah. standard is yeah. quality now yeah. and it's certainly not 4k quality if you you know were to, to pump it on your your 4k screen and you know, it wouldn't support surround sound if you've got a system like that like how how far does that sort of thing go like sort of thing well of, i can tell you that there, like the beatles stuff like you probably wouldn't want to listen to that in mono which is what it was mostly recorded in or at least early right stuff. yeah yeah well a lot of it was in stereo but well it does it, it's funny because the, the beatles stuff is a good example because like the the box set that came out a couple of years ago i, I did buy that but like i don't know if you've ever listened to some of the early 60s recordings they used to put the music the band on one side and the singer mm-hmm. on the other side so if you turned off the left channel all you hear is the singer right like all you hear is john lennon or paul mccartney but if you and if you turn off the other one all you hear is like you know the, the music and then later on they got more sophisticated and they would have like the bass on one side and the guitar on the other and and you know but very separated not not sort of like it is now where things are sort of in the mid like you know, they, they pan them back and forth and they're sort of in the middle they would definitely put them on one speaker or the other right, right? so uh, so if you ever listen to a beatle recording from those that time and you have a dead speaker you're hearing different music than you've ever heard in your life right um well uh, well, where, so where do you fall on that sort of thing, right? That. So I'm, I'm, I'm pushing the limits here and, and understanding the, the, well, the contention so I, of like I will not admit, changing so the art. What I was going to say, what I was, what I was going to say, so like some of my favorite movies, if they're like, I saw Blade Runner, I went and saw Blade Runner a couple of years ago because it, it had come back out with a sort of director's cut, right? Again, director's cut, right? Mm-hmm. And But he had gone back in and, and beefed up the music or whatever. And I saw that in the theater and it was like one night only kind of thing. Yeah, I will go to that, right? And I, like Baby Driver by um, Edgar 
you're right. I went and saw that in a theater because that's where it's intended to be seen, in my opinion, right? When when Edgar Wright came and had his little film festival and he, he showed Shaun of the Dead in a theater, I went and watched it in a theater because I hadn't mm-hmm. seen it there, right? And I remember when Star Wars came through, one of the one of the redos of Star Wars where they were back in the theater again, I had never seen um, uh, Revenge of the Sith. What's it, no, well, it depends it which one. Do you mean the originals? Like when what's they came the, out in the 90s? So what's the, the, the actual the, third? What's the actual third? third movie the third movie what's that one so do you mean return of what's the, the jedi movie called where, where see that's a very complicated return question too because like i i get what you i get what you mean like the third one used to be return of the jedi but now there actually is yeah. an episode three so it's a little ambiguous yeah but it, actually the the uh return of, yeah, the, jedi, return of the jedi return of the jedi used to actually be revenge of the jedi that was his original name right anyway so return of the jedi the one where luke skywalker you know and darth vader throws the emperor down mm-hmm. the tunnel and you know luke's and darth vader dies at the end that that movie there i had never seen it in the theaters just because of relationships and blah right. blah, blah long 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 story but so when it came around i actually went and saw it in the theater and actually i was living in vancouver at the time when star episode four came out and yes i went and saw episode four in the theater right i've even gone to see the phantom menace in 3d in a theater i may yeah yeah that, that's that's quite good like i've you know? uh, i have seen the original trilogy well the special edition versions in the theater um i was two when return of the jedi came out so oh. I can't say for certain I didn't see it in the theater, but I probably didn't because I don't think my parents would have taken me at that t- age. Right, right, right. Huh. Yeah, no, it's yeah. just it, it, so. Yeah, like like I'm saying, the, my point is that you know, the movies like Star Wars, Shaun of the Dead, and you know, Baby Driver and stuff like that are meant to be seen in that context in a theater, right? Um, they're not meant mm-hmm. to be seen on your your 4K, you know, Blu-ray, you know, television with your surround sound and your comfy chairs at home. I mean, that's where we, to be honest with you, but where most of us consume them now or you know or download it onto your iphone 6 because you know the, the film projector doesn't work on the flight you're on you know kind of thing right okay so here's an example right i did a painting and it just happened to be the weekend that the columbia space shuttle took off for the first time like back in 80 something right 82 mm-hmm. 83 whenever that was 82 i think right I remember, and I, you know, it was sort of a sort of a 3D geometry thing. And I thought, okay, this, this painting needs something to make it, you know, that much better. And the, the something I added was I added the space shuttle, you know, and kind of, you know, flying off into the distance, right? And um, I was never happy with the painting. Like it was, I was thought I could do it better. And, you know, so flash forward many years later, like 10 years later or whatever it was, I guess it would have been 90, oh, uh, I guess late 80s, right? And you'll know where I'm going with this because, so I redid the painting and I did a much better uh, rendering of it. I, you know, it was more geometrically precise and all that kind of stuff and better effects and looks, looks a much mm-hmm. better painting, right? And I happened to be painting it the day the Columbia blew up, mm. right? So I intended did not put the Columbia in that painting, right? But so even in my own work, when I want to redo my own work, I do another piece. I don't go back and paint over right. the original one. So to right. recap, um, special editions, no, <laughs> ET, no, or, or you know, n- non-guns. E- I don't mind ET. special editions. I don't mind special editions, but don't take away my right to see the original piece of art in its original sure. context, right? I mean, admittedly, I can't go to Paris in 1913 and see, you know, Damoiselle Dam 
time, you know, the first time it was exhibited, like, you know, that's not going to happen. Right. Like there's no such thing as a TARDIS. I can't jump in it and go back and see, you know, what a flop it was when it was first right. introduced, you know? Um, cause like that was El Damion. I'm using that one as, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, um, milestone because when it came out, it was like, people thought, Oh my God, what the hell is this? Right. And now it hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. Right. And, and we study it in art and we talk about it. We talk about how the paint was put down and how the characters were drawn and all that kind of stuff. And, and what amazing painting it was because like Star Wars, it put, it took the level of art and craftsmanship to a new level. Right. So if you remember, Star Wars was one of the first ones where ILM came in and did motion capture with actual mm-hmm. models. Right. Um, before that, you know, like if you go back and watch Buck Rogers or go back and watch Flash Gordon, you know, you see the spaceship flying along, you know, in, in the sky and the smoke is blowing up <laughs> because, you know, yeah, yeah, they didn't have the, the, the compositing style yeah, exactly. of, of model work that uh, ILM ended up right. doing for Star Wars. And to me, in, in, movie, in movie lore or movie history or whatever, Star Wars was another touch, a touch point or another milestone in, in movie making. Because, I mean, after that, everybody did motion capture. There was silent running. There was, you know, the Star Trek first movie, the, what's it called? The motion the picture. Star Trek the mm-hmm. movie, right? Um, you know, there was like, you know, Blade Runner even used some of that stuff. And, you know, they started using actual, what do you call it, live effects where they where they use, you know, practical effects, they call it, where they actually use physical cars, you know, the flying car is actually a car that goes up and down on a rig and, you know, with smoke coming out, it looks like it's floating kind of thing in Blade Runner, right? Um, As opposed to all being CGI. And then, you know, you move through time and then you get to like Avatar where the whole, like Avatar, a lot of the movie is all CG rendered, which... Yeah, so if I catch the gist of where you're going with this, the nice thing of having those like practical effects was that they still hold up as being like feeling real uh, a lot better than... Realistic, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some CGI I was like, oh man, that that looked really good at the time. Now it looks like garbage, right? It, 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 like you, the art has advanced so much that that early CGI really sort of sticks out. Whereas, like if you compare the uh, climactic scene in Aliens, right, where Ripley is in the construction robot power yeah, suit yeah. and she's facing off against the Queen Alien, that looks hella good. It look it still feels really scary, right? Like that thing is really there. Yeah, yeah. Is like what your reptilian brain is thinking. Whereas I think if they were to redo that movie now it wouldn't have that same aspect to it because there would be something just a little bit off with the cgi today and 10 years from now that same cgi based movie would be like oh man that's so garbage like look how fake that is right we've got we've got pixel shaders that, that do a much better job of, of handling this well that's a good example like because the aliens movie with ridley scott i think the second one was done by james cameron when you're talking about aliens right but the, the original aliens movie by ridley scott it was a guy in a suit right mm-hmm. we all know that right but they never showed a not, they never showed a full frame shot of the monster in that in that movie. In fact, there's a behind the scenes scene where you can sort of see the monster in profile, and you can totally see it. Oh, it's a yeah. guy in a suit, right? In fact, they even named the actor who plays the alien in all these movies, right? But the the thing, the magic about the original um, Aliens movie was they never really showed you full on, you know, like a full frame shot of the alien. Like it was all, it was just enough to scare the shit out right. of you, right? Oh, there goes there goes our rating. <laughs> <laughs> you can but, always you know, edit it in post. But, so yeah. Just bleep it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I mean, so, but my, like, the, that was the whole, that was the beauty of that movie, of that Aliens movie. The other thing about Aliens that was, was really interesting, and I don't know if you know this or not, or, or even realize this or not, but it was one of the first times when a female was the heroine of a movie, especially a sci-fi movie, right? Right. And 
Although there Again, is sort of like the weird like underwear sort of scene, um, and in retrospect, it sits a little weird for like modern audiences, but really not sort of pressed forward as this is a sex symbol kind of character, right? right? right yeah. Which uh, I, I, the the modern Wonder Woman movie actually does a really good job of making her seem like an incredible like warrior first, and not so much a right. like, hey look at me, right. I'm a supermodel. She's still a really attractive woman, though, right? Like there's still some compromise there, um, as opposed to Sigourney Weaver's character. You know, of Lieutenant Ripley, who is like, this is a normal everyday person who has overcome the odds, right? This isn't like, oh, let's throw it in there with Megan Fox or something to, you know, to get all the tickets from the fans. Like Sigourney Weaver was not as known uh, then, uh, certainly for Aliens, much more so because of the Alien movie, but not in that lead starring role for Alien, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I mentioned it before, like Phantom Menace, you know, um, I think I've talked about it on the roundabout and maybe this show too. Like, like I remember specifically that Jar Jar Binks was one of the Jar Jar Binks and all his whole Gungan society was completely uh-huh. CGI, right? I um, mean, that was the first time that that many scenes in a movie were done in CGI, right? And I don't know if you remember, like, you, you talked about a movie that was amazing at the time, but like in retrospect, crap. And to be honest with you, I was looking at it with adult eyes. Um, do you remember there was a movie called Final Fantasy? Final Fantasy, The Spirits um, it was Within, all done yeah, in CGI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and Patrick Stewart was one of the voices in it and stuff like that. Go back and watch that movie. Their foreheads don't move, like because yeah. because the technology to do that wasn't there, right? But uh, I was watching Arrival the other day on Netflix. Now that's on Netflix, uh, great movie by the way. If you haven't seen Arrival, I, I stop the podcast, go watch Revival and come back, and you, you won't you won't be won't regret it. But um, there's a scene there where she goes into the alien ship, like into their environment, and all of a sudden, you, as she's and it's a great mix of of practical like filming of her and all her hair is done in CGI and it it just shows you how far we've come in terms of CGI rendering abilities that they're able to you know make her hair look spacey but realistic like believable right. you know um, yeah but I mean again that Final Fantasy Spirits Within that again was another milestone in movie making right because it was it was one of the first movies where they had actors you know that wasn't anim- like hand drawn animation um, voicing you know these these uh, computer rendered people and again, like you're a gamer, right? You know that, that you know the cutscenes that you see in games. I don't know. I don't know how evolved they've come, but you know, back in you know back in the PlayStation One or PlayStation Two days, you know, you'd have or even or even on the Mac where you're playing like things like Warcraft or you know, um, not the current Warcraft, but the the early Warcraft Three or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have like you know really rinky dink uh, sprites that you were using for for playing the game, but occasionally they would cut to this battle scene where this like you know denouement would happen. Even in Laura Croft, they did the same thing. But now, computer rendering or the devices we're playing these games on, like the you know, the PlayStation 4 and the and the Xbox, whatever the hell it's called. The confusingly named <laughs> Xbox One, which is the third in the one. series. I was, was going to say One, but I wasn't sure if I was going to be you know, yelled at because <laughs> it was 360 before yeah, that. Yeah, and Xbox before right? that, which used but to anyway. be informally called yeah. Xbox, you know, the first Xbox, Xbox One, and then they came with Xbox right. One, which was the third right. one, which is very terribly confusing. Yeah, yeah. So almost like the way Apple used the name product. But um, yeah, so so what I was saying is, like, I think now, like now, we're playing with characters that look like they were in in those cutscenes from like ten years ago or fifteen years ago, right? Like they're that well, like they they can render the entire world and you know have the detail and all that kind of stuff and have the fabric flowing and you know characters can get wet and be dry and you know catch fire and things like that and it looks visually 
realistic, right? That's because the the art has evolved to make it that that good. I mean, it's it's I don't know if you remember the talk that I gave at, at um, Indie Desk Talk. I talked about how you know we started off with flat you know uh, cave paintings, and then we went to into the Egyptians where everything was f- facing forward, and they just kind of you know they bent their elbows a little bit. And then as you move forward into the Renaissance period, you had painters like Caravaggio who could have a guy reaching out of the painting while he's gesturing as he's talking to Christ, like he's right. got his arms, you know, his arm, his right arm is going out into the, into the space where we're standing and his left arm is way, you know, kind of back and he's like got his, he's, you know, and the realistic shading and, and it looks like a candlelit image of this guy talking to Christ, right? And as, you know, art, the technique of art evolved to the point where, you know, going from these really sort of plastic representational iconography to something that looks like a realistic man in space, right? Like in 3D space, right? Um, and those were that, that kind of technique evolved. And that's why we study artists at certain points in time, because they came up with a technique or they came up a way of, of rendering or drawing or telling a story that, that made sense, right? And in the same sense that movies do that too, right? So that's why it comes back to my point. Like, like don't mess with Demoiselle d'Avignon and leave Star Wars alone. Right. And I think as an examination <laughs> here of the, you know, this tool set has become available and become more prevalent, uh, computer-generated imagery. Yeah. But the careful use of that tool and not have it be, oh, this is the tool that we use for everything, I think has been done pretty well in, in the last few years as people have sort of figured it out. And we can use two movies from the same series where the latter movie has way more special effect or uh, CGI in it that a lot of people don't think about actually is CGI because it's done so well and so uh, sort of understated, right? right. Like yeah, yeah. Comparing Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and Episode Seven, The Force Awakens, which just came out recently, there, yeah, there actually one. are yeah. more CGI instances in that. Even though people are like, "What? No, it all looked real." It's like, well, that's because a lot of it was right. Like the huge problem that Episode yeah, One yeah. suffered from is it said CGI for everything, which sort of limited the the possibilities there and meant that there was a lot of stuff being done. And when you see the behind the scenes, I'm like, dude, they're just in a conference room. Like you couldn't have had a set designer come in and do this stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no. Yeah. Why would you waste time and money and effort on CGI for this? Right? Like, yeah, because yeah. it could. Whereas yeah, now, yeah. you know, for The Force Awakens, like, yeah, they they just got some people and they sat in an actual conference room and they used the CGI for things like, oh, um, we want more explosion to come out of this thing. Yeah, when the stormtroopers get knocked over, they actually knock over a stuff. Yeah, and right? BB-8, yeah. you know, that that droid character, like he yeah, actually he is real, there, right? except yeah. for when he's not. Right? Like the handful of times that it would not have been practical to have the real um the real robot puppet uh, for for some scenes yeah, but for yeah. the most part like it's a nice careful blend of we use real for the most part and when we can't use real we use cgi right like um jurassic park holds up pretty well for this same purpose where they used a lot of puppets especially for the close-up shots of like the t-rex and the velociraptors and i think it looks a lot better um, in a lot of respects than jurassic world does which came out like 20 years later right, right? yeah they, yeah with 500 ra- raptors yeah yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it looks, I mean, as, as cool as that scene is with, with Chris Pratt and all the, the Velociraptors, it, it's way more scary to have, like, those little kids with the raptor face, like, right over their head in the kitchen, right? It's like, there's an actual thing yeah. there. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's sort of the lesson here of, like, using restraints well, so but, but technology, But using a technology example, just really quickly on, like, take store, Toy Story for whatever reason, for, for one thing, right? They had server farms of SGI computers, mm-hmm. right, that would take years to render that entire movie. Like I took it, I think they worked on that movie took six years to make and it, and it was like it, most of that time was just rendering, right? It's like, 
like like they're built Jenkins is amazing compared to their <laughs> right. build servers, right? You know? But what I was gonna say too is so okay, I love Rogue One, don't get me wrong. I love Rogue One. However, put Rogue One on and look at the character, the Peter Cushing character, uh is it Gumper, Governor Tarkin? Yep. Right? Look at his character, look at his face when he's talking to anybody on that screen, and then go back and watch Star Wars and look at the actual real actor, and you'll see that they got his voice down pretty good. They've got his his face down pretty good. But if you look at the muscles in his face, they don't move the same. When he's like, like when he was being, when that actor was being cynical, they were muscles in his cheek and stuff like that that were and his forehead that were moving differently. And they totally missed the boat on that in in uh, Rogue One. They have the technology to do it. I don't know why they didn't carefully study what this guy did. And this this is my artist eye going. You know what? That's a near miss, Jaime. That's a near miss. I completely agree because I'm not opposed to the idea of uh, the CGI Grand Moff Tarkin, but um, and I actually think there there are some one at the end, right? Right, right. At least that one was short. Spoilers, spoilers. Sorry, spoilers. (laughs) It wasn't quite as bad. Um, I think there there actually are some parts of those scenes that he's in that are they just look amazing. It's just like yeah, you could show this little clip here, this like five seconds to a person and ask them, okay, what did you notice? And they'd be like, I don't know. I was like, oh, you didn't notice there actually wasn't a real person there. Yeah. The problem is they kept him in there for minutes at a time. Yeah. The illusion just didn't work, right? Like to your point of like the alien thing of like, well, if it's a dude in a suit and it looks terrible, uh, don't show all of it at once, right? (laughs) You show it very carefully framed and and show it very, very few times, kind of like the the, the story that people say about Jaws where the robotic shark was going to show up more, but it kept breaking down. So they said, forget it. Let's do what we can to avoid showing the shark. And it's a much better movie for it. Right. I thought I was gonna, just looking him up on um, Peter Cushing, looking him up on uh, like IMDb or something on uh, on the Google on the Google machine here. And he died in 1994. I thought he I thought he was one of it was one actor, a couple of actors. Maybe it was uh, Alec Guinness who died b- between Star Wars and uh, Return of the Jet. No, what was the other one called? Empire Strikes Back. Right. Well, Alec Guinness is definitively in the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So. Yeah. So no, but I think they filmed some of those scenes like ahead of time, or did they did they go back to him? I can't remember. Anyway, just. I'm, stop yelling at your phone. We don't care. It's not that important. <laughs> um, anyway, the the uh, the uh, this isn't the Star Wars podcast. You know, we don't care. Um, although we're picking on them like crazy. Uh, what was I going to say about uh, Peter Cushing? Oh man! So he died in '94, mm-hmm. and we were talking about Grand, the CGI Grand Moff Tarkin in, in Rogue One. Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, not General Tarkin. Um, mm, I had a point about that. Oh, it was so good too. <laughs> I'll have to wait till next week, I guess. Oh, uh, well. Um, hmm. Yeah, no, but you, they, yeah, to your point, like, or to, to my point, they should have, they should have treated him like the alien and aliens. And, and, cause we knew who he was as soon as he was on the screen. As soon as you heard his voice, you knew who he was, right? You didn't have to be, you didn't have to be staring at him and looking at the, you know, the, the hairs coming out of his nostrils to really believe that was Peter Cushing, you know? Like yeah. They, I think there are alternatives like showing him from angles that don't show the front of his face yeah. or, um, that plus maybe hiring an actor that does look a whole lot like him and use the CGI to get that last, you know, few steps that look different. I think there were a lot of options beyond the audacity, (laughs) having the audacity to try right now to completely replace a human. I think 
even though it's much further along than the Final Fantasy of the Spirits Within movie that you talked about, like yeah, the, yeah. the Grand Moff talking blows those away, right? Like those look oh, like yeah. dead mannequins compared to him. And yet he still is in that uncanny valley of, I can tell that that's not an actual person. Yeah. Well, so I, oh, I know what I was going to say about the Empire Strikes Back. I wonder, like, so, cause you know, a lot of people say, yeah, say them, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? And my son will say the same thing. He says Empire Strikes Back is by far his favorite movie, right? Mm-hmm. I want to find someone who's only ever seen Empire Strikes Back and not seen Star Wars, right? I have a couple of friends who at work who, who've never seen Star Wars. Like, they've never seen the, the six movies. They've only seen The Force Awakens, right? Which is kind of interesting. So it's interesting to get their perspective. It's like, I want to find people who've seen Harry Potter movies but never have read the books. Have you read the books? I've never read the books, no. Oh, but you, have you seen the Harry I've Potter movies? I've seen all the movies, yes. So do you think it's all that? Or, like, do you, know, do you think that people who read the books are, are, are space crazy or something? No, I, I, I just, have, just have not gotten into the books, um, but I think the movies are really good. And yeah, but and I can tell you there are so many subplots. Like there, there are there's a whole context of subplots in that in those movies that don't touch. The, the, I mean, like if you read the book, like for instance, I don't know if you remember. There's a scene in um, might be Prisoner, Prisoner of Azkaban, the one where Harry Potter gives Dobby a sock, mm-hmm. right? And Dobby's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you gave me a sock!" Oh my god, you know, he's just blown away, right? Well, there's a whole subtext of these little house elves, right? They're not allowed to have clothes, right? They're not allowed to own things, mm-hmm. right? So when Harry Potter gives him a sock, that's a huge moment in the story, right? But again, it's like one of these, you know, one of the things that they didn't have time for in the movie, you know, like, you know, like the, the very first movie, there's, a, I think there's a scene where they're, they're, they've just gotten to school and they, they spent a couple of weeks at school and then his owl flies across the, the, the front of the school and it's like, you know, the end of the school term right. kind of thing. Like they're like in that whole story, there was a whole thing thing about you know Hermione and all the books she she like at one point is one of the stories I think it's the Goblet of Fire no that's not it's uh the one with the Hufflegriff bird or whatever the thing that creature is called um where Hermione has that little watch where she can go back through time do you know do you remember that one yeah oh, oh okay let's see here so uh is the werewolf one was that not Azkaban that's Azkaban, I don't remember right? I don't remember yeah, it's gotta be it, it might be Azkaban it might be or, yeah it was the one with yeah the one with the werewolves and stuff like yeah. that, I think right anyway but there's remember uh, uh Hagrid's in the cla- in the in the um in his cottage and and uh, the inspector guy the head inspector I don't know Ministry of Magic or whatever guy is coming to take the the Hufflepuff away and and Harry Potter and Hermione go and steal mm-hmm. it and then at one point she goes back and that, well that's a whole story the whole subplot about her taking three courses at a time like like right. you know how we were just talking about about uh, 360 idea being four tracks and how are we going to manage that like you know, like even though you even though you're at the conference you're going to miss you know, three quarters of the conference, right? Um, like, imagine Hermione had, and I think it was—I forget the name of the McGonagall. I think was the, the teacher who gave who gave her this watch and taught her how to use it, so she could actually take three or four classes at the same time. Right, and they they and hinted that briefly really, really, in the movie, but definitely not an entire yeah, subplot but, about it, as you're specifying here. Yeah. So all through the book, like you know, she would kind of show up, and and Ron and Harry would look at her and go, "Where did you come from?" Kind of thing, you know, and she just kind of popped into the room, kind of thing, literally. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was kind of, uh, but again, I, I, that's, so my point about that is that my point is that, um, I think it, it's it, 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 to get into your head and sort of understand what you really like about the, the Harry Potter movies versus, you know, how, someone who's read the books and gone to the, I mean, cause there's a level of disappointment as you can imagine, or there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of different, you kind of have to tell the story differently in a movie context because you can't get that many words into a movie, you know, you can't get that much descriptive copy into a movie. Yeah. 
I, I, just, I think for know, me, movies, movies would be years long, right? People, people think I'm crazy when I say this, but I say, look, if you have a choice, right? Like, you know, if you were a Harry Potter fan from book one, you really didn't have a choice. All you had was the books themselves. And it was right, years yeah. later that they actually started making the movies. So there's not much you can do there. But I'd say now, if you've never read the books and you've never watched the movies, I'm a fan of the philosophy of I want to start good and get to great. What does that mean? I think you watch the movies <laughs> yeah, first yeah. and then you read the book because no matter how much you know something might be a, a cultural touchstone or it might be um, you know, a classic and an Academy Awards or anything, like even stuff like the Godfather movies. From I've never read the books. I've, I've loved the, the movies. Everybody says, oh, yeah, the books are better. It's like that's a constant refrain. The books yeah, are better. Yeah. better. Like, yep. I, I don't want to be disappointed, right? You you know, we don't eat the cupcakes first and then go have the vegetables to trail it off with. Right? No, you, you eat your vegetables and then you have the cupcakes, right? You you start good and then you get better. Well, it's, and, then, and then you get things like, like Blade Runner. Like Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies, too. Like, I, you know, I think I, I even, you know, converted a laser disc onto DVD, so I have it on my DVD player. But um, and but then I went and read the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? And mm-hmm. it's the same, but it's different, right? Like, you know, the movie's much more sinister, you know, like it's got the whole sort of the replicants coming back to find their maker subplot, which isn't, I don't really remember that being in the book. And the book is, the book's quite different, right? So, yeah, but the, it, the difference is in adaptation for sure. Like the, the Hobbit book yeah. is way different than the Hobbit movie series yeah for many reasons well and also like there's also the rankin bass hobbit i don't know if you've seen the hobbit cartoon that was done by rankin bass you know the famous animating yeah the rotoscoped one i I might have seen it a long time ago i definitely have not seen it in years you know recently well i have a copy of it on i think i might have a copy of it on dvd but i have a copy for sure on vhs but um well okay let me answer the other question first before i go into some, some hobbit related discussion here so for the star wars thing my favorite movie of all the Star Wars movies is The Empire Strikes Back. I think it's okay. uh, the best Star Wars entry. However, I think that does Star it, Wars... Does it stand on its own, though? Does it stand on its and, own as a single movie? And that's movie? the however. However, the better movie in general is A New Hope, right? The original 1977 Star Wars, because it is fully compact like you come in it's sort of like the you know the middle of things going on you know it's like an end media res sort of thing but there's enough that you're given that like okay i understand what's happening and you have a very satisfying conclusion the empire strikes back has none of that you start in media res you have to know all of this backstory to make any sense whatsoever these relationships and it ends very unsatisfyingly like with a cliffhanger you want to know more and it's a much it's a much more complicated movie because it benefits from a lot of those things and that's why it's like my favorite i'm like wow the total is just spot on here uh, and there's a lot of classic moments but i think i answer the question of what's which is the best movie and i'm like well i think it's the original star wars is the best one none of the other series entries um stand alone right even the uh, not Empire, uh the phantom menace doesn't stand alone it, it hints and and gives you right. a little bit of winks and and elbow nudges like uh, uh remember this thing from the original trilogy that make no sense whatsoever if you didn't already know the lore yeah uh i remember a criticism of the lord of the Rings. Uh, particularly the the Fellowship of the Ring is like uh, this seems like when Obi Wan sacrifices himself. I'm referencing, of course, yeah, uh, when yeah. they're in the bridge and their uh, Gandalf sacrifices himself to fight the Balrog. I'm like, uh, this book came out in the 50s, long before Star Wars was a thing, right? Oh, <laughs> like, right. Forget yeah, about yeah, yeah. like character archetypes. Like that literal, you know, inspiration was there. Obi Wan equals Gandalf. Gandalf equals Obi Wan in these books. Okay, okay. Let's let's take this back to context. I mentioned earlier about 
about this whole whether Star Wars was had this whole world built around it, and I don't think it did. Right? It had maybe a sort of a, a theory behind it, right? But authors like J.R. Tolkien and Isaac Asimov, you know, they built an entire world before they started writing in their minds or on paper or whatever before they started writing the stories. Like so, as um, as J.R. Tolkien was writing The Hobbit, he kind of invented this world in which these people live, right? And he must have had like when he when he had the Ring of Power, right? He or what do they call it? The, the One Ring, mm-hmm. right? When when Bilbo gets that from Gollum, he must have in his mind's eye had a, a, a backstory about the ring, right, and where it came from and why it had this magical power and that kind of stuff. Or or did he, right? Um, because when he sat down to write the Lord of the Rings, you know, he had this whole sort of Game of Thrones kind of like you know giant landscape, right? So you know, I do yeah, wonder about so, that. Like, I, I know there is like, history. You can't compare George Lucas to J.R. Tolkien. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, he basically did this whole thing because he, he was a linguist, right? And right. he created this, you know, these languages like Elvish and everything. It's like, oh, maybe I should do something here. And the Lord of the Rings itself reads kind of like the Bible. It's very, very dense and has a lot of description in it that doesn't make any sense unless you view it as sort of like a biblical equivalent for that he was creating there. And right, right. coming back to like the Hobbit piece, I kind of wonder if the reason the Hobbit sort of suffers a little bit um, is that they tried to make it be as epic as the Lord of the Rings. And when I've read both, you know, sets of books, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, yes, there is some connectivity there. And I think it was really cool the way that Tolkien got that to work. But the tone is so different. Like the Hobbit yeah, is like yeah. for much younger children, right? And yeah. I don't know, like say they're eight to 10, maybe it, it reads that style. It has a lot more whimsy and, and magic and, and wonder to it. And Lord of the Rings is much more like teenager, you know, young adult sort of thing of like That's people true, are yeah. dying yeah. and this is serious. And I think or even adults, if yeah. you had had yeah. the Hobbit series come out or Hobbit movie come out first and then Lord of the Rings, it probably works a little bit better than here's this grand epic saga. And then here later, here, let's take this other movie that isn't really meant to be grand epic saga and have it work right like like imagine if i mentioned the the balrog scene in lord of the rings imagine if the balrog was like talking to gandalf it wouldn't play the same right like it's better to have it be uh essentially a mindless beast Mm -hmm. and smaug rancor right what's that (laughs) it's the rancor right and and smaug in the hobbit speaks and kind of entertainingly so as as uh benedict cumberbatch but it feels really weird tonally and like uh you got dragons that speak in this world that that doesn't fit with a world of mindless balrogs right Right. like tonally it seems very weird and that's why i feel like yeah the the, the hobbit is more like a younger kid's story and the deep dark stuff is in lord of the rings that's much more in that high fantasy sort of setting yeah well when you get around to reading um harry potter um i i I started reading harry potter when when the um the uh, goblet of fire had come out but i I started with the first book the first book is written like a book for 11 year olds right it's written very juvenile and very easy to like you'll you'll whip through it right mm-hmm. but the later books you get into are you know they're much more there's a lot more going on there's much more you know death and destruction and you know havoc and whatever and, may, and also maybe maybe um uh what's her name's uh, writing um JK got Rowling. much better jk rowling yeah mm-hmm. uh, maybe her writing got better um her writing style got better but um yeah like when you go, when when you do get around to reading that book you'll see what i mean like it's very it's very juvenile at first and then and then the first book entirely right like it's very it's a very easy read and but as as you read into the later stories, they get harder and harder to read, right? So there's more going on, right? Yeah, I, I do wonder how much of that was rolling skill and how much of it was more like... I think it was skill. It, I think it was like, it's kind of more... I mean, the problems of what's Harry, like 11 at the beginning of the, of the yeah, books? Yeah, exactly. And 17, yeah. like those problems 
are so radically different. And so it is kind of <laughs> entertaining and funny how in the same series, you know, Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone is more like, oh no, I may fail my potions class. This sucks so bad. Yeah. You know? yeah. And in the, in the Deathly Hallows, it's like, uh, Harry, you literally have to sacrifice and die. And people are being <laughs> murdered all around you um, yeah, yeah. to deal with this problem. I was like, well, okay, this is totally different, but at least there's a, there's a progression there, right? You hypothetically grow up with Harry, assuming you started as a young kid reading these. As, as he grows yeah. up, you grow up too. So I'd be very curious to see the sort of differences between people who, you know, read the books as they were going along, you know, and were already adults yeah, or people yeah. who read the books as they were kids and went along. And then well, people who are kids and adults now who are reading through the books straight through and kind of see like, how do they feel about that? Does it feel weird? Did, did you notice the difference? Was it more obvious to yeah, you yeah. reading, you know, being able to binge read them versus the people who had to wait you know, like a year or two in between, um, in between yeah. books? Anyway, this is going to be impossible to edit because it's like almost like a whole show unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how we ended up on this. So we should wrap path. up the uh, the the, uh, the Star Wars after show. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is if we had you know audio engineer interns, yeah. communications yeah. and broadcasting interns, it would be fantastic to do these kinds of extra shows because I'd love well, to have this sort of conversation we just had, but yeah. throw in Tammy into the mix and like let's yeah. talk about zombies here, right? We, we broached on yeah. the you know do zombies. Zombies float. Can they swim? Sure, does Mike? Yeah. Does zombie well, Michael yeah. Phelps? Does he swim? Yeah, yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.